All right, tonight, you're not going to use your Bible very much tonight. We're not going to use our notes because I'm going off the notes. This is going to be like science class. I'm sorry, but I'm not because it's kind of worth it. If, if science wasn't your thing in school, I'll, I'll, it, I'm trying to make it interesting, all right? Uh, we have a question. How old is the earth? This is the question. This is an important question. Do we trust God's word or do we trust science? And we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna put science under its own microscope a little bit, scientism really. Um, and we're going to really investigate how they come up with these numbers that this is a million years old, this is 100 million years old, this is hundreds of thousands of years old, and now we're talking into tens of billions and hundreds of billions of years. They just keep making these numbers larger and larger and larger, and there's a reason for that, because what they are saying could happen in millions of years, we've decided can't happen, so therefore it became hundreds of millions of years, and we said well, it couldn't happen in that time. Now it's become ridiculously long. Um, so it's kind of unmeasurable. Even a million years is almost unmeasurable to you and I's understanding and mind. So what if you take the chronology of Genesis and through the Bible, we come up with, you hear people say between six and, between six and 10,000 years, um, and that's pretty, uh, that's taking just a literal version, view of that. Again, one of the problems is in the King James Version, you're missing 600 and some years. If you remember our study in, in the Bible, that the uh, Old Testament translators who were, that we trust for the King James Version were who? What kind of Jews? They're the Masoretes, but what kind of Jews were they? Were they Christian Jews? No, they denied Jesus Christ. And one of the things they wanted to prove was that Melchizedek was Seth. And so they extracted 600 years out of the Bible by taking 100 years off of six generations in there. If you get a Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, those 100 years are there. And you will find that the earth is about 650 years older if you use the Septuagint translation of the Hebrew, which is more, I, I would consider it more accurate, um, because we've had the Septuagint untouched, and the Masoretes didn't touch that text, and that's why the Eastern Orthodox Church is Bible, which is a translation of the Septuagint, not of the Masoretic text, has all those years in there. That would put you up closer to around 7,000 years, something like that, um, depending upon a couple other things. Uh, and also it means that Israel was not in captivity for 400 years. Abraham, from Abraham to Moses was 400 years. Not that. Yes? Because it was 100 years each. Because we compare the King James to the Septuagint, and the King James is missing 100 years six times. So it says exactly how long these people lived. And then they had a kid, and then they lived this many years, and then they died. And when you compare the two texts... For six generations, there's 100 years missing <laughs> from each man's time on earth. And so add 100 years to their life from your King James, New King James, NIV, NASB, all your modern translations that are not the Eastern Orthodox, not built on the Septuagint. All of them are built on the Masoretic text, which is a bunch of Jews preserving Scripture who deny Jesus as, their, as the Messiah. And so, and that's the influence you have, and so, um, so, but, but we'll just say, let's just say 7,000 years, we'll just put that out there, 7,000 some years, 
is our contention. And so the science comes along, and I was involved in this. I was a big, big science guy in high school. My major in college was chemistry, um, so that's how invested in science I was. And so we're confronted with this data. And, of course, you can't contradict data, can you? Or can you? Okay, this is the issue today that is confronting the world. Follow the science. Well, who's science? What science? The science that told us at the beginning of this not to wear a mask? Or the science says that if you don't wear a mask, everyone's going to die? Uh, which science? The science that tells you that you need lower cholesterol? Or the later science that says you need good cholesterol? Or your brain won't work? Because your brain feeds on cholesterol. That's the fuel for your brain. So maybe the reason we have so much uh, Alzheimer's and things like that is because we've been cutting people's cholesterol, which is the fuel for your brain. They don't want you to think, even old people. And so um, if you want to keep your brain functioning, pump up your cholesterol because that's the fuel for your brain. So what science do you want? Is what I'm saying. So this contradicts this, this contradicts that. And, uh, uh, and it's interesting that one of the science things that was a big deal early on to the government, and still a lot of our uh, requirements right now are built off of that, had to be uh, in, an, in a, that was published in a journal, it was a published scientific study, they came forward and said they falsified data. And it had to be recalled. But still, a policy throughout the earth and in the World Health Organization is built upon that study that the, only, the people themselves admitted to falsifying data. So this is the condition of science, and yet in science we trust is really the way most people are today. So let's look at the science of age, of determining the age of the earth, which takes us into uh, geology, it takes us into chemistry, a lot of chemistry involved. I think you'd be shocked at how much chemistry is involved in this. And if you're not yet, you will be before the end of this hour. Um, and how much is involved in paleontology, which is, you can't imagine how much of human imagination is at work in the realm of paleontology and then in archaeology. Talk about archaeology, but archaeology really is recent history. And, Paleontology, ancient history. Paleo, anything with paleo means before in the ancient times in, in science. So if you want a paleo diet, what are you eating? Caveman food, Cave food all right? Yeah, you're eating <laughs> raw meat or something, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> you know, that, it's, just, it's, it's come to mean just old, very old, okay, paleo. Uh, by the way, um, we don't know what Paleo-Hebrew is. The original Hebrew the Bible was written in has been lost. When was it lost? It was lost during Israel's captivity in Babylon. And Hebrew today is really a poisoned Hebrew with Aramaic. That's why Hebrew and Aramaic are so close together today that people in Israel speaking Hebrew can understand uh, people in Iraq speaking Aramaic. Because they were there for... A long time and it influenced their language and that's why um, the the translators of the Septuagint had access to paleo Hebrew transcripts that we don't have anymore 
The Qumran scrolls aren't that old. They aren't old enough for that. And so that's why the Septuagint um, is such an important document. All right, so let's talk about how science comes up to it. So how does science decide age? All right. All right, dating methods. So if I use the word dating methods, um, you're thinking about, well, there's online dating, there's speed dating, there's, no. <laughs> See how fun science can be. All right, so dating methods. So carbon-14, what is carbon-14 dating? All right, this is radioactive decay. That's what, carbon-14 is an isotope. Radioactive isotope. It plays baseball. Okay, at the AAA level. All right, so radioactive isotope. And so uh, every dating method presupposes, has assumptions. Remember, I told you we're going to attack the underlying assumptions. So carbon-14, every radioactive thing has a half-life. That is, it becomes less radioactive over time, and, the, and every isotope has a different half-life. Some of them are very, very short, like seconds half-life. Do, 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 and pretty soon it's not uh, radioactive at all. It never becomes zero radioactive because if you keep going in half and half and half and half and half, it just gets smaller, right? Math teacher, right? So if you take a half of something, you'll never run out. So that's what radioactive stuff. So we just get less and less and less and less and less of it. You never actually ever get zero because of half-life, although it becomes so minuscule you can't measure it at some point, which I think is, means it's not there. But we have these half-lives, and we know the half-lives. These are measurable things today, and that's the important thing. Can this be measured? Half-lives can be measured. And now we say, well, if there's this amount of carbon-14 in this fossil, in this rock, now we can back that up and say, well, so many years ago, it had double that, and that many years later, it had double that, and that many years later, it had double that. The problem with this is, what happens at the back end of carbon-14? What happens to the, to the fossil, to the rock, to the... Uh, 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 what's the fossilized trees called? The, um, the petrified wood. If you, keep this, if you keep this concept up, what is the condition of it originally? Think about this. Radioactive, okay? <laughs> Nothing is, is that radioactive when it's alive. All right? By the way, all of you have some carbon-14 in you. You have a level of radioactivity about you. Every tree has some carbon-14 in it right now. And so we have a baseline, and we can take that back. Now, um, here's their underlying assumptions, all right? Maybe you already know them. I'll ask you, what are the underlying assumptions? Uh, we're not going to attack the constant, because we've, we, we, we've never seen it change in the history of modern science. So we can't attack that. All right, so what are the underlying assumptions of carbon-14 dating? All right, we don't know the original concentration. And so what they do is they project modern concentrations onto the history and back, okay? But 
Original concentration, we don't know. We weren't there. All right, we don't know what, what the air quality was like back then, especially when they talk about these big events going on. So we don't know what the original amount of carbon-14 in everything was. We just don't know. We weren't there. No way he was measuring it then. The other assumption is that there was is, uh, no... <laughs> um, what? Huh? Well, we'll get to that. Um, that there was no... What happens? Not poison. All I can think of was poison. No. Yeah, that there wasn't anything contaminated. There's no contamination. Contamination. No contamination. So this thing fell on the ground and nothing ever touched it. Nothing ever uh, got around it. Nothing contaminated your sample. Which means no other animal crawled on it. Uh, nobody spat on it, nothing urinated on it, uh, no weird rain fell on it, no lava overflowed it, no, no contamination. Okay, how many samples do you have that are like that? That's the assumption, no contamination, including when you found it. That no bulldozer pushed it around. That you didn't contaminate when you picked it up with your hand, ever. Any hand, even Native Americans, 400 years ago, that no one contaminated it. That is an underlying assumption of carbon-14 that there's no contamination of it, okay? That there's a constancy there, that it is a pure sample, all right? And they're also claiming that there is a, <laughs> a constant carbon levels. Are there constant carbon levels today? No. There's a higher carbon level in the city of Albuquerque than there is at the Bahamas. Yeah. Is there constant carbon levels on the earth? No. And they've done carbon-14 dating on living trees that we know exactly how long they lived um, in urban settings that were right along an interstate and sent it to a lab, not telling them, and the lab said, oh, this tree is like, you know, 3,000 years old. No, we planted it 40 years ago. Why does it show up so old? Because the carbon concentration of all the exhaust from all those cars is absorbed by the tree at higher levels than a tree that is up in the mountains that, ha that no car ever gets to. Okay? So we don't have constant carbon levels today on the earth. And then over the time, we don't know what the carbon levels used to be. We have some inkling about them, from geology, because we can dig down and find a layer of earth and say, well, or, I'm sorry, dig down and find a layer of ice in the glaciers and find different carbon levels. And you know what we find out? This is going to shock you about global warming. Carbon layers were multiple times, over ten times higher before the Industrial Revolution. Way back there. Way, way back some point in the history since the flood, carbon levels were ridiculously high. Ten times. Because the earth was covered with vegetation. There were no deserts. And we can measure that. That's measurable. So we know from ice core samples that ice down here has higher carbon levels, so we know that that isn't constant. 
So if carbon levels aren't constant, carbon-14 becomes a worthless measurement. And then, here's what I'll say, don't tell you, carbon-14 only works uh, <laughs> for less than 10,000 years. It cannot give you a life longer than 10,000 years. Cannot. It is beyond the purview of carbon-14 dating to go beyond 10,000 years. Completely impossible. Now, there is another chemical radioactive test, which is um, potassium argon. Now, you're not going to care about that. Um, but that's another radioactive isotope. It has a much longer half-life, and so it can measure much longer. The problem is, is that potassium argon is very, very tiny amount in living organisms. You're measuring very, very, very small quantities, and these same questions come into play. The same assumptions that have to be made to use these dating methods, this chemical radioactive dating method, is still prevalent, and it's multiplied by the size. In other words, if you have this much carbon-14 to measure, and you have these bad assumptions, you have a plus or minus problem, right? An error problem. It can be plus or minus this or this. If you have this much to measure, now those same assumptions give you a plus or minus that's huge of range of error. And I mean huge. But they deny that. They reject this that there's no contamination, that there is a constant potassium argon um, level instead of carbon, and that they know the original concentration. We don't know any of this information. In fact, we know these to be erroneous, and yet we trust in this dating method. And there are other um, radio radioactive isotopes they use to measure off of, but all of them have the same fundamental flaw. So no matter what dating method they want to throw at you, if it's radioactive isotopes that they're measuring, this is the exact problem they're going to have. Okay? They have these assumptions that are underlying it that make it a problem. And yes, we, just like with COVID-19 where they have sent in sterile swabs that have come back positive, nurses did that in a couple of hospitals in Texas. Um, because they, like nobody's showing symptoms, but they're all coming back positive, let's send in a sterile one. Took it right out of the package, put it right in the thing, and sent it to them, didn't swab anybody, and came back positive. All right? Um, you also have the same disinterest in the truth among labs testing radioisotopes. Because here's what you do. You send in a, send in a sample, and they say, where is this from? What geological strata is it from? How old do you think it is? They ask those kinds of questions before they test it. Do you think that is a problem? <laughs> yes. Because it means that they know the unreliability of their test, and if you're looking for something younger or something older, they'll skew the number in that direction. They could easily do that, because it's not really that reliable of a test. All right, so that's just one. That's one dating method. What's another dating method? I just referenced it. Strata. This is the circular reasoning that Valerie was referring to. Um, and that is uh, black. That is uh, geological strata. What is that? Okay. When you look at the hillside, a mountainside has been dug out, you'll see layers, right? 
So you have some topsoil, uh, then you might have, I don't know, limestone or whatever, and then as you go down, you have a different rock. And you can see how you go to the Grand Canyon, you see all these layers, all the colors. All the colors you see, are very those are strata. And the theory of long life, or long ages, is that each of those strata represent millions of years. It took millions of years to lay out that strata of soil. And then millions of years lay down the next strata of soil, a million years lay the next down. And so they go by what strata you, and they have names for all those strata, don't they? You guys are familiar with those, with them naming this? This is the, this period and that period. And so they have stratified. And the problem is that, uh, well, you tell me, what's the problem with the strata layers? Is that they age them by the fossils they find in, and then they age the fossils by the strata they're found in. That's the circular reasoning. So which one is indicating which one? Well, they're mutually interdependent. And so if I think this fossil is 100 million years old, then that sets the date of the strata, and now every fossil found in that strata is 100 million years old. And it goes round and round. And then we have layer displacement. And so now we have these kind of things. How does that work? Now, a, a biblical view is what? How do these layers get laid down? The flood. You have to have a, a, a worldwide flood. And if any of you taken soil, and we, by the way, we do this in geology. If you want to get a soil test done of, of property, uh, and I've had a couple of those done, you get a big clump of that soil, you put it into a bunch of water, and you shake it up. <laughs> they put it in a machine, they shake it up, and then they let it set. And it sets in, guess what? Layers. Based upon what? The density of the components of that soil. So, um, you know, granite things lay down faster, and then you come up, up, and then you end up at the very top with just a silt, very light stuff. And then you have organic stuff that might be floating on the water that has to get saturated before it settles down onto that lightest of the, of the soils. So you can make strata yourself in a good-sized jar and some water. Well, what does the Bible say happened at the flood? Where did the waters come from? The earth broke open. The waters of the deep broke open. Broke open what? Earth. It was the water. Remember the Bible says that there's water below the earth and waters above the firmament. That's the only two places. There's just a river. There was no oceans described in Genesis. In the creation narrative, there's waters below the earth and above the firmament. The windows of the firmament were broken open, so we have water coming from, from above the firmament, and we have waters coming from below the earth. So the earth was broken up, which I would contend accounts for what we see as continents, and, and we have all the, and then it, all that soil, I mean, if you think that Noah could see through the water while he was floating there for a year, you're wrong. It was muddy. And it laid down layers, just like we would expect. And it's no surprise that limestone is frequently one of the upper layers, because it's lighter than the others. doesn't surprise us that. And then the organic layers are laid down by the time since then of plant life laying down its, and making essentially compost. And so, and that's going to vary based upon the region of the earth. And so, 
geological strata um, actually promote that because there's one geological strata that's important. What's the one that's important? The Cambrian, oops, the Cambrian layer. Why is the Cambrian layer so important? Ever heard of the Cambrian layer? The Cambrian layer is where all living fossils come from. It's called the sudden onset of life. We have nothing, we have no fossils below the Cambrian level and almost no fossils above the Cambrian level. Think about that, which means that suddenly life began. It didn't begin, there weren't, and they show you pictures in your science book that down here are fossils of these, you know, little creatures. And then as you get up in the fossil layer, that you get more and more advanced creatures. No such thing exists. That's a complete fabrication. They're all mixed up together, and we call it the sudden onset of life. That there is a Cambrian layer where almost all of your fossilization is. What does that tell you? That, and by the way, the way to make a fossil, if you want to make a fossil, here's what you do. You take a living thing, and you bury it in mud, and then you put a lot of pressure on top of it. That's all you need. Um, Mount St. Helens has made fossils. It also made petrified wood very quickly. There's a petrified forest down at that lake now um, because it met all the conditions. That it, it created that lake create a mud situation, buried it in mud, the pressure of everything on top of it creates fossils. That's all you have to do. Does that sound like something to you? Sounds like the flood, right? And so, and would you expect it to be all in one layer? If you have a flood, you would expect it to all be in one strata. They died, and then all these layers laid down of lighter material packed right on top of them. And that mud would have, uh, and the pressure above it, and all that water pressure before it got sucked up into the uh, glaciers, um, just compacted it and made the fossils. You cannot have an animal die, lay on top of the surface of the earth, and create a fossil. It can never happen. What happens to animals that die and are laid on the surface of the earth? They decompose. Okay, if you go out here in West Mesa, Scott and I go out there and collect old tires, and we run across people who dump animal, animals out there, and uh, you'll see just bones. Oh, there's some bones. Somebody had a something, dog or whatever. They just threw it out there because they didn't want to pay to get it taken care of or something. And there's the bones. Uh, you go out there later, 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 what do the bones end up doing? And animals came off, but ultimately they break down too. They get whitewashed, and then they start getting, and they get fragile and more and more fragile. They do not ever become a fossil. They don't fossilize. Surface death does not fossilize. You have to have mud, and you have to have pressure, those two combinations, to make a fossil. Okay? And so the idea that fossils are laid down over, over all these years is a lie, straight up. Fossils. Something enormous has happened recently. What have they found in fossils? Soft tissue. Now, why is soft tissue so huge? Soft tissue cannot survive, even in fossilization, it cannot survive more than 1,000 years. 
cannot. Why do we know that? Because, believe it or not, fossils have been created in, just what I said, like Mount St. Helens, in volcanic situations, and we have seen soft tissue not present in fossils from, that we know were, in, I mean, we know it because, like in Pompeii, it was just swallowed up, and so we know that that event happened in the history of man, uh, when, and we have it, so we can measure that. So we know when we find soft tissue in a fossil, that is huge. In fact, over here in the research center in Arizona, Creation Research Center, uh, they call it the iDino Project. And uh, the iDino, I dash, the letter I, Dino Project. And they are studying soft tissue in fossils, which is huge. And it used to be just uh, in amber. They used to talk about being in amber, and that was the premise of the Jurassic Park movies. Uh, that there was soft tissue, that there was still genetic material that they could access in the soft tissue in, encased in amber. Okay, and again, amber is another thing that takes immediate encasement and then pressure to create amber. And the same with diamonds. What are diamonds? Carbon. They're carbon buried and pressured, and that's why they can make they can make false diamonds. They aren't false diamonds; they're real diamonds. They're just man-made because we put carbon under pressure. Yes, and so amber is another one of those. So um, soft tissue is huge. It's a huge thing in, in the scientific world, and that's why you hear a lot of paleontologists, a lot of uh, these geologists saying, well, we don't look, no longer believe in evolution. They don't want to go to believe in God, but they are willing to question the premise of evolution. And there must have been, and now what are they proposing? They're proposing cataclysmic event to shorten the time period because of this discovery just in our time. Just in the last few years, we have found soft tissue, substantial soft tissue. Okay, And we're not talking about uh, uh, woolly mammoths. Okay, Woolly mammoths have been uncovered um, that you could still eat their flesh because they were frozen in glaciers. Okay? Um, an entire woolly mammoth that you could still slice it up, put it on the grill, and eat it. You'll try it once. <laughs> okay? So, yes, as glaciers recede, woolly mammoths become exposed, and they are that fresh. We're not talking about that. We're talking about inside of fossils. They were getting genetic material, and, which is very telling. And so the iDino project is huge there in Arizona, and, and studying the soft tissue. Um, as it relates to the age of the earth. And this becomes a huge problem. But the making of fossils is a problem because it can't happen over long, long periods of time. It has to happen in immediate. And now geologists are saying, well, there has to be. And so what do they say? Well, it was an asteroid hit. It was a life ending. All right, once you have a life ending event, okay, what do you mean? What has to happen now? All right, if it's a life ending event back then, all right, if it's the Cambrian age, if it's the Cambrian age and an event happened that something hit the earth and now we have this huge ice age, almost everything on earth dies. It's all fossilized in this huge event that they have. Um, all these, and we have the, in the Cambrian period. Now remember, this isn't the top layer. This is way down there. And so now what? Now you have to start evolution over again from that period on. 
Granted, you might have a little bit more advanced life by whatever survived that event. Well, we know what survived it, and it was eight people and a couple of, of every critter to start over with. Okay, and so um, all of the true science, even this number, that carbon-14 is only good for less than 10,000 years, we're cool with that. Right? Surprise. I'm okay with that. Less than 10,000 years, you want to date something, but just be honest about it, that you don't know the original concentration, you don't know the, uh, that it, whether it's been spoiled or not, and you don't know what carbon levels were back then. Well, we kind of do, but we don't know exactly when it was. But the Cambrian age is huge, and then when we get to soft tissue, it fits right in with us, and so we have the dinosaurs. Now, let's do one other geology thing for you, okay? Let's talk about canyons. What makes canyons? Okay, uh, we have the Grand Canyon right over here. Everybody comes to visit me, they want to go to the Grand Canyon like it's an hour away. Um, so we have the Grand Canyon right over here. Um, we, have a little, we have the little Grand Canyon here that Rio Puerco had. Uh, if you go up north of the Rio Rancho, it's pretty, spe it's pretty good. It's not... Yeah, yeah the Rio Grande Gorge. All right, what makes a canyon? Erosion of a river, right? Okay, have you seen the elevation of markers of the Grand Canyon? The top to its source? So if you believe that the Colorado River carved the Grand Canyon, then you believe that water runs uphill. Because the source of the Colorado is of lower elevation than the top of the Grand Canyon. Yeah, so I was telling my kids that while we were standing at a placard at the Grand Canyon. Some people were standing around me, and I was explaining to them, this is higher than that. How did water run uphill to form this canyon? Because if, if, if the canyon is formed there. So uh, erosion did not create the Grand Canyon unless it eroded from the Grand Canyon outward, which would require what from the Grand Canyon? That it was a, below the water level at some point, which agrees with Fossils. Do we find fossils in mountainous areas? Absolutely. There's fossils up here in Sandia. Just walk around. You'll find fossils of marine creatures. Seashell fossils. Absolutely. So, the, so we know that there's a geological disturbance. We know it in the Bible as the flood that, that caused all this and, and that... Uh, that also cause these fractures that we call canyons. But as the water drains away, uh, it would have drained from high to low. Um, and in the course of that, yes, we have that. Uh, and so when we talk about aging things, you have to ask the question, what is the constant that they're basing it upon? Okay, I'm going to throw another one out at you uh, that I don't really believe in, but uh, one of the things that they always laughed about was how much dust is on the moon. How's my cosmic dust? Also, how, how um, salty is the ocean? We know, again, we don't have a constant because how salty it gets currently might be different than how salty it got prior. But if the earth is millions of years old, how salty should the, earth, should the ocean be? should be much saltier than it is now based upon current 
increase it. And by the way, the ocean is continuously getting more and more salty. And if, if it had been millions of years in that state, and we've been going, or even hundreds of thousands of years of its current rate, it would be much more like the Dead Sea in terms of its saltiness. If you've ever been to the Dead Sea, that's pretty salty. Okay, you float in it. You can't sink. Yeah, Great Salt Lake. Because, so, we, we have all of these indicators of a young earth that they never want to talk about. Okay, same thing with tree rings. They used to say, oh, we can tell the age of this forest by the tree rings. Really? What's the assumption there? Again, underlying assumptions. Ask these, what is the assumption? That one ring forms each season. Is that true? Well, every year. One year. Every year it forms a ring. And they say, oh, we can see how old this tree is counting the rings. But we have known planted trees, cut them down, counted the rings, and recognized that these trees put out sometimes two and three rings a year sometimes. Based upon wet and dry. It's not about winter and summer. It's about wet and dry. And when it is particularly wet, they will put out a ring. And then if it gets dry and get wet again, they'll put out another ring in the same year. And we know that now, but they don't tell you about that. How many of you know that until now? Now you do. Okay, so a tree can put out more than one ring a year. And the same thing with ice cores. They drill ice cores. And again, what's the assumption? That each of those layers represents a year. Well, what if every one of those layers represents a storm? Oh, now we can put in multiple, multiple of these, and now all these layers really represent a melting, free, uh, freeze-melt storm cycle. How many of those happen in Arctic conditions? Okay? And again, we don't know if they're consistent with what we're seeing today. And by the way, if you're worried about Arctic becoming ice-free, they told us it would be ice-free by 1987, by 1998, by 2006, by 2014, by 2018, all of these are predictions of when the Arctic would be ice-free. And it has more ice today than it had 30 years ago. They don't tell you that. I recommend Tony Heller's channel, although he's an evolutionist, or believes that he's a geologist, so he has the old Earth theory. But uh, Tony Heller has a site um, that on Facebook that has great videos on that, but now he's switched over to COVID videos, so it's kind of... And political videos. So, we have all these indicators of a young earth in science. These things that we've been told indicate old earth um, have underlying assumptions that are easily dissolved. They just, and everyone acknowledges it in science, ultimately. Yeah, and you'll hear science say, yeah, but it's the best we can do. And I say, well, that's not good enough. That's not good enough to, to base your entire philosophy of the cosmos on that. On It's the best we can do. Don't communicate it as truth when you know that the underlying assumptions of the test are grievously false. Don't believe it. And certainly don't build your whole life over it. But that's what we're commuting to children in school and in high in high school and in college and postgraduates, and that's this is the party line. 
well, we have all this indication. And we can talk about um, the uh, uh, distances of the sun, moon, and stars. Uh, we can talk about that. We can talk about the speed of light. They're saying, well, these stars are so much distant from us, and, and how do you measure that? You can't triangulate because you can't get off the earth to triangulate these. You can't do it. It's a lie. It's an all-lying assumption. And the Bible says that, that, Jesus, that God spread out the heavens like a curtain. And so I believe that and within the firmament. And so we, we have this information. But again, the speed of light is not a constant. We know that's slowing down. Um, that the speed of the sun isn't even a constant. Did you know that? The speed of the sun changes throughout the seasons. In the summer, it slow, moves slower, and in the winter, it moves faster. Have you ever heard that? But that's measurable. We can measure that. We know that. But they won't communicate that because it doesn't fit their narrative of scientism. And so you don't know that the... It's not just the days are longer because the sun is, is farther to the north. It actually slows down as it goes north, and it speeds up as it goes south. And we can measure that. That's measurable. We know that. Um, and so uh, when you look at these kinds of things, understand, always question the underlying assumptions of what is being said. And that goes true with the medical community, medical science, geology, anthropology. Uh, <laughs> uh, what are your underlying assumptions? How do you interpret it? Okay, um, real quick. If, how many fossils did they find to build the first Tyrannosaurus Rex model? One bone. Now, we have found complete skeletons of some. Um, what about transitional forms? Any transitional forms? Where'd they come from? In fact, I grew up having to memorize all the names of all the missing links. Do you remember having to Lois, and they named them all. You know how many bones were involved? Two and three bones of the whole skeleton. And then when they, found, when they did DNA testing, oh, this bone actually is from a pig. Oops, part of Lois is a pig. Oh, I guess we should rethink Lois, maybe. You think? Okay. Um, and so now, and so that's when I grew up where DNA wasn't readily done, and now it's so readily available. We can look at these bones, do DNA analysis, and say, these don't even, these aren't even the same creatures. They're not even the same category. A transitional form is half of one and half the other. So a transitional form, half cow, half um, human. Wherever we came from. Half monkey, half man. The missing links. Where are the missing links in the fossil record? And there are zero. There are zero. So the question was asking about dinosaurs. Can I answer that tonight real quick? Yeah, and I don't think it'll take me long. All right, I was going to bring you pictures of dinosaurs, but I was too busy this week, and my truck broke down. I had a problem. Anyway, um, we have dinosaurs on the earth today. We call them reptiles. Okay? In fact, I'm going to draw you a picture of a reptile you can look up online. Okay, it looks something like that. These are legs. There's legs here and there. Okay? But here's the back, and there's a fin up here with little pokey things, okay? Yeah, don't. This is why 
I communicate with words and not pictures, okay? I should have brought the pictures. This is terrible. All right. One of the great things I really enjoyed about the uh, Creation Museum is they had all these unusual reptiles from around the earth. And they looked incredibly like little miniature dinosaurs. The same exact features that we think of, of that dinosaur, the big fin, of spikes and weird places and all of this. Um, what do you know about reptiles and their growth? As long as they have food and time, they never stop growing. Can you imagine if that were true of humans and mammals? All, mammals don't do that. Mammals stop. You get a mature size. You can grow this way, but you can't get bigger, okay? We don't, this is not growth, okay? Um, this is not growth. Uh, as long as they have food and time, they keep getting bigger, Okay. How long did people live before the flood? How long, what is the comparison between an alligator and a human lifespan today? No, they live about 70 to 80 years. Uh, rarely. Usually they get eaten by them because we want their, tortoises will live that long. They'll live hundreds of years. Um, sea turtles and some years. I know that because of Finding Nemo. Uh, <laughs> Disney, that's the place for all your truth. Um, an alligator lifespan is pretty much equal to a human lifespan. What happens if an alligator lives as long as humans did before the flood? And never stopped growing. Because they had continuous food. Because the food supply wasn't limited then as it is now, post-flood. How large would the alligator be? So instead of living 70 years, it lives 700 years. Theoretically, 10 times, probably more like about 8 times bigger. Now you're starting to get into the sizes you think of when you think of dinosaurs. But recognize most dinosaurs were small. Uh, only a few got to the mammoth size that we think of that we see on Jurassic Park and things like that. Most of them are pretty small. Um, but reptilian life just keeps growing as long as it lives. If we take the lifespan of humans before the flood, apply that to the reptilian world before the flood, and recognize that no one was eating meat at the time, then we can begin to understand where these giant skeletons are coming from. And by the way, someone asked me, are there... Dinosaurs in the Bible. Yes, Job describes two of them. One's called Behemoth, and the other one is called Leviathan. Leviathan. One's a sea, one's an uh, earth one. And in my margin of the school field, it's a, it's a hippo. And I'm like, since when did a hippo have a tail that could knock a cedar tree down? You know, <laughs> the little hippo's got these little curly tails. <laughs> They're like a pig's tail. Um, it's like, no, that's not a hippo. That Leviathan described in Job by God. God describes Leviathan to Job. God describes behemoth to Job are these giant creatures that it would have, uh, Job had personal experience with. And in fact, uh, people are surprised when I, I remember when the kids were told to dress up of, of living, of animals for Word of Life night, uh, dress up night for Noah's Ark. Can I come as a dragon? Yes. Really? You believe in I said, yes, there were dragons on the earth. Every culture says there were. If 
fire-breathing dragons. Do you have a problem with fire-breathing dragons? I don't. You have a problem with <laughs> If they were here, right? Yeah. I don't have a problem with they in my backyard, but that they existed once is not a problem, is it? We have creatures on the earth today that do incredible things. We have an animal swimming around the ocean that create electrical current out of its body called an eel. We have a little beetle that can mix two chemicals together and spit it at you and, and kill its enemy. Chemical warfare. Bombardier beetle. That's what it's called. It creates a little bomb, chemical bomb, and sends it at you. So do I have a problem with a fire-breathing dragon? No, of course not. That's a simple thing to do. It was a chemical thing. It didn't have to go around and eat coals. It was just a chemical thing. All you have to do is have two glands creating two chemicals that combine. Inflammability happens. Okay? Yes. Yeah, forget having an elephant carry your stuff. You have your dinosaur that's 800 years old carry your stuff. Because it's like 12 times the size of an elephant. So, we have to re re understand life and understand the time before the flood to account for these things, but also understand that in the last dinosaur that is mentioned uh, in history was killed during the medieval period by a monk who encountered it on his journey on the road. And it was, it, it was, a, uh, it was about four feet tall. But you think that a fire-breathing dragon is the size of buildings. But they don't get that way unless they live hundreds of years. They start off in an egg, this big. And go down to the zoo and see the little baby alligators running around. They're this big. And 70 years later, they're 12 feet long, 14 feet long. Okay? And, and you need to think in those terms. And so... Um, do we have answers for these things that negate the science? Yes, we have really good answers, historical things. You go anywhere in the world, and there will be, in the history of those people, encounter with large reptiles called dragons, whether it's China, Europe, South America, Africa, anywhere. And they will have those encounters. If I told you that such an animal is a platypus, since I mentioned him last week, existed, and you never see him. You say, he's off his rocker. But then you go to a, Australia, and there they are, the only place you find them. Same thing with kangaroos and other things. The isolation of that continent's animal is really unusual. But the problem is when a guy like Darwin goes to a place and sees different animal life, because he doesn't believe in God or the Bible, he has to go to delve into his imagination to come with an alternate theory. And the theory of evolution fails everywhere we go if we apply true scientific standards to it. But we have abandoned those. And we base all of our theory examination upon false assumptions that we know are empty. And you don't have to have an answer for everything out there. You just have to ask the question, what's the underlying assumption of their argument? Because I guarantee you those underlying assumptions are riddled with problems. I just picked this one because it was right in my wheelhouse of chemistry. 
Okay, so I studied that extensively, and I know the underlying assumptions, and I know the error, and I know the problems with it, and I know the falsification of data. And if you don't think that happens in the scientific world, you don't understand the scientific world. It is driven by one thing and one thing only, and that is, how do we get more funding? What results do I need to get more funding? That is the driving force of the scientific realm, whether it's in the university. And I'll tell you who, who acknowledged that. And, and I posted this on my Facebook page if you want to read it. And that was uh, President Wilson on his, I think it was Wilson, on his last speech leaving office. He warned against it. We shouldn't be funding universities to do scientific research because they will falsify data to continue getting funding. That was his concern. And if that's a president's concern leaving office, it probably means it was already happening and he was seeing it and trying to warn the world about it. That they would just make stuff up to keep getting funded. Surprise. Okay. And so he also warned the Americans against technology gurus making decisions for our country that are beyond technology. So we can go into this a little bit more if you have questions. I've gone very late tonight. And I apologize to my wife. Please go s deliver her from your, from your children. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the trustworthiness of your word and for the evidence that really is around us to speak to its truths. We pray that we might be better students of your creation and of your word and see that they do correspond. And we know that men hate you, that they hate the truth, that they hate the light, they want to live in the darkness, and they will do uh, great damage to knowledge just to substantiate their own unbelief. And Lord, we pray that we might be guarded in our hearts and minds from such. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.